It is good to be back. We hiked in the rain and we camped in the sunshine. Kind of got that backwards. But we had a great time. The guys that went up to Table Rock and Sassafras Mountain. We hope to go back somewhere up that way in April. But in the meantime, uh, we are telling stories, some of which will not be told. Well, some stories will be told, some won't. Right? What happens in Table Rocks? Yeah. Awesome. Uh, it, it was beautiful. Uh, there, it, well, the leaves aren't turning yet, but it was beautiful. Still green and lush. Lots of rain has made it very lush. But probably to try to describe what trees and nature will look like in the new heaven and the new earth it is probably too big a gap. It's hard to imagine. And so what I'm going to do to kind of, uh, you know, we all nod and go, yeah, it's hard to describe. Well, let me just give you a bit of, an, of something that might help you imagine how big the gap is. This won't help a lot, but it's pretty interesting in the process. So um, I was reading and someone was sharing about things that happened in the 1500s. And uh, things changed a lot in the last 500 years, 600 years, something 500 years. So let's, let me share a couple of these things. And I'm, if you'll forgive me for reading, um, I think that it will do us more justice if I do that. So first of all, in the 1500s, people got married in June. And the reason was because you took your annual bath in May. And you were still smelling pretty decent in June. I'm not making any of this up. I'm just saying. I'm just reporting whatever. So, but in June, it's still been a month, so there's a little bit of a scent. So the bride would carry a bouquet of flowers to mask some of that. Don't imagine he smelled any better. So there's that. That's June weddings. When you did take a bath, you'd fill this big tub of water, big tub up with water, hot water, heated up. And the men got the privilege to go first. So all the men that lived in the house would go, and then all the boys would go, and then the ladies, and by the time it got, and then the children, and then by the time it got to the babies, you, you can't see the bottom, hence the expression, don't throw out the baby with the bath water. Most houses in the 1500s had thatched roofs, lots of hay and straw and things like that, and there was just sticks, there wasn't a whole lot holding it up. Um, so, you know, if it didn't rain hard, you were in pretty good shape, but if it rained hard, but also when it got chilly, that's where some of the animals would go to get warm. The cats and the dogs and the bugs, they hit up there, but when it rained really hard, you get the expression, raining cats and dogs, which is why bed canopies became popular. Keep the bug, bed bugs out of the bed. I'm not making these up, I promise you. These are crazy. This is why I had to share some of this. A lot has changed, right? The floor was dirt in most homes. You had to be pretty wealthy to have anything other than dirt on your floor. Hence the term dirt poor. Most people had little meat, but sometimes they would get some pork, which made them feel special. When visitors came over, they'd hang up the bacon so you could see that they had wealth show it off, show that the man was bringing home the bacon. Then you sit around the fire and chew the fat. I'm, these, these are not dad jokes. I know they sound like it. <laughs> I will remember some. They might work. Lead cups were used to drink ale or whiskey. Not that I'm recommending that. The combination would sometimes knock people out for a short time. 
Someone walking around the road would take them for dead and prepare them for burial. They were laid out on the kitchen table for a couple of days, and the family would gather around, eat and drink, and wait to see if they would wake up. Hence the custom of holding a wake. Things have changed a lot in the last 500 years. <laughs> England is an old country and not very large. They started running out of places to bury people. So they'd dig up coffins and take the bones to a bone house and reuse the grave. When reopening these coffins, one out of 25 had scratch marks on the inside. Yeah. They realized they'd been burying people alive, so they thought they would tie a string to the wrist of the corpse, lead the string out through the, the coffin and through the dirt, and tie a bell to it. And someone would have to sit out in the graveyard all night, graveyard shift, to listen for the bell. Thus, someone could be saved by the bell <laughs> or is considered a dead ringer. Things have changed a lot in 500 years. It's hard to imagine how much it's changed, it will change in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, we talked about that some last week in Revelation 21. We're going to pick up where we left off in verse 9. We're going to focus on the new city. You realize there's only one chapter left in the Bible. Like, now, we're not all going to go home and say we've done it all because we haven't. But I'm just wanting you, 21, we're going to finish today, 22 will be the next couple of weeks and we will finish the book of Revelation. And these are the last two chapters of the Bible. They're also the only two besides the first two that have no sin as a part of what's happening in the context. Now, remember, John is revealing a vision that God has given him, which is why it's called Revelation. It's a revealing or an unveiling of what's, what's coming, future history. Of course, everything's history to God because he's already seen it played out. But for us, it's future history, and that's the perspective we, we approach this at. And, and so what's this new Jerusalem? What's this about? And, and we're going to see a de detailed description of what it is and why it matters. Last week we said that our bottom line was that we were, going to, we were looking forward to the new heaven, the new earth, and the new city because we we're going to live in God's presence, we we're going to experience his mercy, we we're going to enjoy his pleasures, and we we're going to be aware of his justice forever. That's still true for today. What I'm adding today is that we're going to, um, we're going to recognize that the true treasure in all of life is God himself. Now, that sounds like something you would hear in church, isn't it? Yes, God above all else. God is the greatest. He is the treasure. He's what we go to heaven for. But deep down in us, when we think as people who still have this flesh on us, this tainted by sin flesh, that doesn't sound so appealing to the flesh. But I want to describe to you a little bit more what that God that we are looking towards is like. And by looking forward to and getting to know him better, maybe we'll appreciate more what is yet to come, which is why we look and say the best is yet to come. So with that, let's jump into the text. We're going to start in verse 9 again, like I said, and um, see what John has for us. We'll finish out this here today, starting in verse 9. One of the seven angels, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, talking to John, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, we've heard in Scripture a lot about the bride of Christ. If you're in Christ, you're part of that collection of people that together make up the bride of Christ. That's saints, past, present, and future. 
That's not just New Testament saints. That's all those like Abraham who believed God and he credited it to them as righteousness. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. But she's going to look, it's going to be a symbol that's used here. And he carried me away, John writes, in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Let me stop there. So you see the number 12 happens a lot. Okay, remember um, numbers often, numbers have meaning in the Bible and in Revelation all the numbers are symbolic of things. So um, the number 12 is a number that combines um, God's completion and perfection with covenant. There's an element of covenant. And, and you're going to see that this is very much that, that this city is very much God and man together, humanity, as God intended Okay, you're gonna, it's going to be the Garden of Eden on steroids, okay? So let me, let me, um, let me just make a few comments here, and then I want to get into the, the rest of it, where I really want to spend the bulk of our time. Using lots of precious jewels to show and speak of the beauty of God, okay? There are some parallels between the jewels that are mentioned here, the gemstones that are mentioned here, and the gemstones and the breastplate of the high priest in the days of of Israel and the Old Testament scriptures that we read. Um, and again, that points back to the covenant relationship that we have with God. And if you think back to the days of, if you go back to 1500 BC, you've got Moses. And Moses was part of seeing the tabernacle come together. And that was the beginning of the nation of Israel as a formal nation with laws and with uh, God at the center of the camp. They would set up the tent, the inner temple, and then they would fence it with another kind of uh, cloth fence. And so they had their backpacking trips across the desert, not in the mountains. And they, that was their worship vehicle. And all of that was where God was, God was present in the center of his people. And there was like... Um, you had three of the tribes who camped to the north, three to the east, three to the south, three to the west. So they were all organized by tribes, and, and they all had different jobs, and they all had um, different purposes in what they were doing. And God would be in that inner center part of the temple, okay? And that temple, I, I want to say it was 40 by 20 by 20, but I'm not quite sure. I, it might have been 30 by 30 by 30, but I believe that was the temple later um, that, um, that we had in Jerusalem. And the temple... Okay, so David, 500 years after Moses, around 1000 BC, he built a more permanent, a more beautiful gold-covered structure because he wanted to honor God. And he's like, I'm living in a palace and, and God's living in a tent. Well, God says, I'm not living in a tent, David. <laughs> I don't need you to build me something. But I kind of like that attitude, so I'm going to let your son do that. And so he builds a temple with the roughly the same proportions, actually the same exact proportions on the inner part. That would have been 60 by 30 by 30, and I'll explain those in a minute. And again, on one half of that, just like in the tabernacle, there was a dividing curtain or veil. And the idea was that nobody went behind the veil on the side where the Ark of the Covenant resided, 
which is representing the mercy seat of God, which is where God was, that only a few could come in on the other side and they would, you know, light the incense and do the bread of presents and all that um, good Jewish stuff. They would do all of that, but they wouldn't go around the curtain except once a year when the high priest could more bells tie bells have bells on him and they would tie a rope and and he went around and if he did everything right he'd sprinkle blood on the ark of the covenant and come back and atone that was the atonement for the sins of the whole nation called the day of atonement or Yom Kippur but they tied the rope to him and bells so that if he stopped ringing they, they would assume he dropped dead and they could pull him out so I guess he could be saved by the bell too. No, he wouldn't have been saved. It would have been too late, right? Wrong, wrong. Okay, see what happens when I get off script? All right, so, so there we go. So, and, and so all of that, the point of all that is that God always wants to be in the midst of his people. He wants to be there. Because he is the treasure and he treasures us. He is the win. Don't miss that. Our tendency is to treasure the things of this world instead of the creator of the world that has those things. We focus on the creation instead of on the creator. That's our temptation, and it is, it is always a temptation that all of us struggle with to different degrees. It's why when we hear God is the, the wind in heaven, we don't get, jump up and down and get all excited. But I guarantee you, if I gave away a set of car keys to a brand new make it up, whatever, Jeep. Somebody would get excited in the room and there'd be some hollering and screaming because that's where we're so upside down in our value system. And I'm just talking to the Christians. I mean, the rest of the world, they don't, they're not even trying because they don't have the ability yet. They don't have the vision yet to see that. All right, so there's, I, I could dwell on all these stones. I could tell you all these details about all these stones. Trust me when I say there's more, that is, there's some really good stuff coming I want to get to. Um, but 12 tribes of Israel, that's important. The, the passage that Pat read talked about um, that the foundation of the church, 12 stones uh, representing the 12 apostles, 12 stones representing the 12 prophets, Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and who builds the rest of the walls but the people of God. So we become, in, in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, we see we're the temple, but the Holy Spirit dwells in us. But, you know, you think about all the times you read Paul and, and, and the letters of Paul, and he'll say things like, Christ in us, right? So that sounds right. Okay, so we're, we get to be the temple. And then there's other times when it says, us in Christ. So, whoa, 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 I thought Christ was in us. Yes. But wait a minute, I'm in Christ. Yes. And you're going to see that confusion played out in vis visual here in just a minute. All right. So, um, as, so starting in verse 15, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia, that's not stadiums, stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long, okay? Now, I'm... I'm quick to convert and I, I see numbers in the Bible and I start converting and I miss something when I do that here. Okay, 12,000, a stadia is, is 1,500, no, 12,000 stadia is 1,500 miles. Okay, so that's a big city, 1,500 miles. That's from Charleston to Salt Lake City, I don't know. It's a long way across the country. A city, that's one side. Then it goes the other way. 
And then it does something very odd. It goes that way. 1,500 miles. Now, I focused on the miles, how big this is going to be. Remember, it's a symbol, okay? We're going to live in a real place. We're going to live in a real world. And I won't doubt that there are going to be cities. And I'm not going to doubt that there are going to be mountains and things. But don't miss the symbolism that this is supposed to represent. Twelve. The number twelve. Its focus is on this beautiful covenant relationship that we have with God. Okay? Now, um, for those of you who are rather young, I will just say younger than me, ice cubes used to be actually shaped with the height and the width, and, and they were much bigger, bigger than this. And they were shaped equal size. Now you get an ice tray, and they look like, I don't know what you call that. You, if you use ice tray, some of y'all, or if you use an ice machine, right, and just those little, I don't know, looks like the um, refrigerator's burping water or something. I don't know what shape you call that. But that's a cube, okay? It's the same height, width, and depth, Okay? Watch what it says here. It says that he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and width and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement. There's a wall as a part of this, 144 cubits. 12 times 12. Thick. The wall was made of jasper, which happens to be a clear gem. Um, And the city was pure gold, as pure as glass. Okay? Um, so we've got a city here that's made of gemstones and glass. Oh, I'm sorry, gemstone and gold. So um, I was doing a little research on gold. Fort Knox has 100 and roughly $137 billion worth of gold in it. That's what I hear. I don't know that I believe that. But anyway, it's there supposedly. And if you take all the gold bullion in Fort Knox and you combine it into a cube, the cube is just under 20 feet tall, wide, and deep. Solid gold, worth $137 billion, okay? Now, when we build, I'll come back to it. When we build our roads, what do we use for our roads? We use asphalt and aggregate, which is like gravel and sand and other aggregate material. Not gemstones, but minerals, rocks. When we build our bridges with that beautiful South Carolina concrete. Everybody drives to come see our concrete. We have the beautiful concrete bridges, right? It's just this dull with sand and some gravel and cement. Concrete and cement are not the same. Concrete and cement's an ingredient in concrete. And we have our bridges. They're not pretty, right? Because why? We just want them to be efficient because we need lots of them and they're expensive to build. But we're going to live in a city where... Things as valuable as gemstones and gold are going to be used to do what we use sand and dirt and rocks and water and cement to make and tar, okay? In the city, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, gold. But here, here's the thing, as, as lavish as all that is, that's not the treasure in heaven, When you think about the temple and the tabernacle, right? I said in the middle of the temple, it was 30 by 30 by 60. When you cut that in half with that veil, that makes the most holy place and the holy of holies where the ark sits, what shape? Cube. 
The place where the Ark of the Covenant would rest was a cube. You look through scripture, where else do you find a cube? There's only two places. Wherever God's Ark is resting in his tabernacle or temple, or when the city called the Bride of Christ comes down. Now let me watch, watch how the rest of this reads out. And you'll see why this is such a big deal. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod. He measures at 12,000 stadia, verse 17. The angel measured the wall using, okay, verse 18. The wall was made of jasper, 19. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. Normally, foundations are underground because they're ugly and concrete and concrete blocks. These are, uh, we're going to see these at least while it's coming down. This city is coming down out of the sky. We see that up in. 10 and he carried me it's shown in the glory yes there it is the holy city jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god this city will come down and i don't know if it's going to be sitting like that or like that i don't know and again it's a symbol so it may not even look like that but something's coming down that god's calling a city the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone beautiful lavish Valuable. The first foundation is going to list all these gems. Jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, ruby, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, turquoise, uh, I don't even know how to say that one, jacinth, and the 12th amethyst. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. By the way, an average pearl costs between $300 and $1,500, and they're, you know, smaller than a marble. We got a city gate made from a single pearl, and the walls are how big? 144? I mean, we're talking, right? We're talking a pearl bigger than a house. Just, you know how a pearl's made, right? It's an oyster or a, a mussel or a clam gets a grain of sand inside. Plenty of grains of sand at the beach, right? And, and one gets it and it just irritates and irritates. And so the, the mussel or the clam or the oyster secretes this fluid that just wraps it and protects it from that irritation. And it ends up just building up and building up, making this beautiful round um, gem of sort, a gem of sorts. And it's just incredibly beautiful and valuable. And the gates, we're just, these are the gates. Look, these are gates that won't ever close. It's like, why do we need gates if they're never going to close? And there's angels guarding the gates. No need for them either, it feels like. Why? Well, let's, let's see what it says. The gate, each gate was made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. Now, again, all of these things, I believe, are probably symbolic. So why make the big deal about the literal stuff? Because the symbols mean something. And so you can translate the meaning to whatever it actually represents is better than what the symbol is saying because the symbol is just a symbol of what that reality is. Verse 22. This is where it gets really interesting to me. John says, I did not see a temple. So John's going down the streets of this massive city. He's going, where's the temple? Where's the temple? There's no temple it says that, that he, I did not see a temple in the city. And then he says why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, when I read that the first time, what I heard was that the, the city was the temple. That's what I heard. That's not what it says. It says that the Lord God and the Lamb are the temple. And that just confused me. 
Okay, so go with me to, what was some of those other verses I had? Um, I want to look at John 2, John 14, and we already looked at Ephesians 2. John 2. Let's flip back. And, and John was written by John, just like the book of Revelation, same John. So John 2. And this is going to talk about the temple. John 2, verse 17 through 22. Okay, this is where Jesus clears the temple courts. And it says, uh, John writes, his disciple, Jesus' disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18, the Jews then responded to Jesus. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? This is when he's flipping the tables over and he's chasing the animals out of the temple because they had turned the temple courts into a mall, essentially. And they were more like a corrupt mall because they were taking advantage of the people. And this is what Jesus says, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, how many times have we read that and thought the physical temple, right? Is that what he's referring to though? No. He's not going to build what took 46 years for them to build with an army of people. He's not going to rebuild that in, six, in three days. But if the temple is his body, then death, burial, resurrection, three days. You see it? And what's the temple that he built? John 14. Starting in verse 1. Jesus says, and he's talking to his disciples. He's just told them one of them is going to betray him, so they're all distraught. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be, may be where I am. What's the house? It's a city. A city of houses for God's people. It's got to be big. Billions. It's got to be big, right? So I did not see a temple, I'm back to 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So it's the in Christ, Christ I'm in Christ, Christ is in me kind of, I don't know if that's the, the literary term for that. I don't know if that's a juxtaposition, but it's this, this is true and this is true and, and they're, they're working together to create a new reality, but it's not different than what we as Christians experience today. And that is Christ is in me and I am in Christ. And because Christ is in me, I have what I need inside to do the right thing for the right reason, with the right motives, for the glory of God. And because I'm in Christ, I'm protected from those who would oppose me. I am shielded from the fiery darts of the enemy. I am empowered uh, to resist and stand firm. He is my refuge and my fortress. You hear it? All of this language that we've read all through the Bible, it's all coming together here in Revelation. He's just borrowing language that has already been shared through all the previous scriptures. John's just collecting and reusing. I guess you could call Revelation recycling. I mean, it's just recycling of stories and words and images and symbols and truths and principles and lessons that you and I and these folks needed and we're going to need to encourage us and challenge us to stay faithful in a world that's gone sideways and long for a long time. 
right? Some of us are scared right now. Worried about, yeah, am I going to lose my job? Um, you know, some of us are, are, have lost jobs. Some of us are worried about our health, our family. We've got family members or friends that are in the hospital. There's, there's so many things. We're, we're, we're worried about unprecedented times of the way our government is going, it feels like. And, and, the, and we feel like we're closer to a second civil war than we've ever been. I mean, there's just all kinds of fear and the temptation to be afraid out there. And God says, remember Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us? I'm with you. You don't have to be afraid. I am awesomely great. I can do all things. I am able. And, and he just keeps reminding us of these things. And, and the book of Revelation was written originally at the time when the church was being persecuted by Rome. And their neighbor, Christians, the neighbors of Christians sometimes would persecute them and fire them from their jobs. And sometimes the soldier would get caught and, and people would be crucified because of what they believed. Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in that Caesar was Lord. Because they said, Jesus is Lord. That's treason. That's what they were facing. So they needed this to be encouraged that the best is yet to come. If they were in prison, this would have been encouraging to them. Is it encouraging to you? Because if, if it's not, then you have a belief issue. You, you, if you don't believe, then you're not going to be encouraged. Or if you don't understand, then it's not going to make sense and you know, won't be encouraged. But I, I, I encourage you, I urge you to consider these words. Consider these words. He continues, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. First time I read that, I thought, no, sun and moon oh man, like that's a big deal, right? But that's not what it says. It says the city does not need the sun or the moon. So they, they could be hanging out up there. It's kind of like, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember when glow-in-the-dark glow watches became kind of a big thing. And I remember getting my first Timex watch and it had the glow-in-the-dark little notches all around. And, and so, you know, Christmas morning, you get up and, and um, I always got up and it was still dark. But then later, um, and, and you try to look at it during the day and you were wanting it to glow during the day. And you just, it wouldn't, it wouldn't do anything. It was like, such a it's like this isn't really working this is no good i have to go into a closet turn out all the lights and go into a closet and then i can go in there and get excited because i could read it in the dark like that's really helpful because i don't need to read it in the dark most of the time that's what it's going to be like the 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 light from the glory of god is going to be so bright you're not going to need your flashlights you're not going to need any candles you might light a candle for some ambiance or whatever but you're not going to need it you're hey there's the i think i can see the sun and you're looking right at it and you, you know because it's so bright the glory of god now what's the glory of god we, we talk about it we just roll right past it the glory of god is a visible manifestation of what god is who god is what he's like so what is god like God is holy, holy, holy. He's true, only tells the truth. He's all-powerful, okay? He's love. He is light, so manifest himself, light is appropriate. He is life, and um, I'm missing a couple, but he's unchanging, which means he's either 
He's either always perfect or never going to be. Well, he's God. He's perfect. And if he were to change, he'd cease to be perfect. So perfect, unchanging, immutable are all interchangeable there. Glory is, is more than just visible manifestation. It's a presence. It's, it, it's a weightiness. So I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, it's kind of like if you watch, um, if you like superhero movies like I do, I like to watch them. I'm a, I like Marvel better than DC, but I like them both. I grew up on Superman and Batman, so those were kind of nostalgic for me. Superman has always been the most impressive to su- of superheroes because of his great power. And there's just this presence and people get in his presence and they're like, wow, and um, you know, because there's, they, he's got the x-ray vision, he's got this, he's so strong, he can lift up, you know, anything, he can push planets around, he can fly around super fast. It's like, we glory in the presence of somebody we try to make God, and to God, he's a cartoon. <laughs> there's a joke, he was actually, he is a cartoon, <laughs> but you see, there was a weightiness to Superman that kind of, in really, every superhero that's really impressive you're like there's a weightiness there well God's the real thing his glory is that that sense of weightiness and one of the reasons we sin so quickly is because we take him so lightly you hear that phrase take him lightly the glory is weighty you hear the contrast When I treat God weighty and recognize how holy and all those things he is, I'm not so quick to sin because, for one, if I'm his kid, that's not the way his kids act. And that quickly reminds me who I am. The identity comes back in to remind me, remember whose you are. How many of you ever had your mom or dad say when you would go off to leave the house, remember who you are? Anybody ever have that happen? Anybody ever have that said that? Not very many. Okay, I'm with you. All right, there's a couple. Remember who you are. Remember your last name. The identity thing. In other words, remember that if you do something stupid, it's going to come back on dad, and he's not going to be happy because that's his name. You're, right? Well, as the, as the children of God and followers of Jesus Christ, right, whose who's name are you carrying? Are you appreciating the weightiness of God? We, we rationalize sin. We're like, it's not a big sin. It's a little sin. Every sin is sin in God's eyes when it comes down to what caused Jesus to go to the cross. Some sins have greater consequences than others, but some are just the beginning of something with serious consequences. You know? Murder starts with this, I hate that person. Oh, I hate what they just did. Just a flash. That's where murder starts. And unchecked, it continues down that road and it manifests into action when opportunity arises. Lust ends up adultery or worse it starts with a thought and when we take God too lightly sin swoops in and temptation has great power and we're talking about living in the temple with God the nations will walk by its light that is the light of the glory of God the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. I think at this point, since we're on the other side of the millennial reign, the kings referred to here are those who would have ruled during the millennial reign, okay? Which I believe we said were Christian martyrs who were resurrected, and they would rule over the, whoever survived the tribulation, okay? So you've got humanity that's still left that are following the Lord, You've got the resurrected martyrs who come back to rule them, and that's the millennial reign, the, mil- the 
the thousand years rule of Jesus, and then of course it ends with Satan making one more run through and deceiving and Gog and Magog and that whole battle, and then the last judgment, and then Satan and everything else is thrown into the lake of fire good for, forever, and that's dealt with. So these are, these are the kings, I believe, that were ruling during that millennial reign. On no day will its gates ever be shut. We talked about that. For there will be no night there. No night because the glory of, the God, glory of God never stops shining. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Do you hear that? The nations, ethne is the word. means ethnicity. It's where we get our word ethnicities. All ethnicities will be represented in the new heaven and the new earth. Okay? And this lily white church, we're going to be in the minority, friends. It's going to be beautiful. Okay, so, all right, love your neighbor, whatever. It doesn't matter where they're from. It doesn't matter what language they speak. It doesn't matter what culture they come from. They're gonna be right there alongside of us in the new heaven and the new earth. Let's love them and, and honor them as just as image of God bearers as we are, okay? On, on verse 26, the honor in the nations will be, the, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, that is the city, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I want to read something else to you that I thought was pretty profoundly well, well said. A couple of things. First of all, um, so speaking to this idea that God chooses people, okay? It's easy to think this isn't fair for God to pick some and not pick others. Let me just share what Jim Hamilton wrote. He is a, a commentator and a pastor who has heavily influenced my teaching of this series. He, he writes, God wrote these people's names in the Lamb book of, Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Okay, so whenever he talks about, is your name written in the Book of Life, your name would have been written in that book before the universe was created. Okay, I know that blows our, our minds. It is not unfair of God to write down some names and not others. He is God. He shows mercy to whom he pleases. Just look back to Exodus thirty-three nineteen, and you'll see how he talked about that when he referred to, to uh, Pharaoh in the days of the Exodus. He does not owe mercy to anyone. That's important. Don't miss that. None of us deserve mercy. That's why it's called mercy, right? If you deserved it, you would have earned it, and it would be justice. And so if you and I get into heaven because we justly deserve it, you don't need mercy. But let me, let me just tell you, none of us are going to be qualified for heaven unless somebody steps in and mediates and gives us hope. He has chosen to guarantee that some will be faithful. So you hear God's sovereignty there? He has chosen to guarantee that some will be faithful to him. And the rest he allows to make their own choice. You hear human responsibility? You hear freedom of choice? They're both here. They choose to worship the beast and suffer the consequences. We saw that earlier in Revelation. But it is not as though those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life do not get the same choice. God so works that they are born again, and as a result, they have the ability to see God's hidden kingdom. If you're a follower of Christ, you have the ability to see the kingdom that is here but not yet. Because of that, they choose to resist the beast. They chose, I'm sorry, they choose and God chose them. Humans are responsible and God is sovereign. Okay, that's a pretty, I thought that was a pretty beautiful way to weave that together. I'm not saying I understand it all, but 
I, I find that to be greatly encouraging. And then, and then I just wanted to share this with you as a picture of kind of why all this matters as we think about this city that's coming down and that we're that city that symbolizes the people of God in union with God. And this is, what, this is how he, he describes that. And I thought this was really cool. Make sure I have this other page. If I don't have the other part, you're going to be disappointed. I'll just read what I have. Imagine that you were born into a miserable situation. No family, no future, no hope. A father you did not know and never would have met would, never would have met, sets his love on you. He makes elaborate plans to redeem you for himself, make you part of his family, and give you hope and a future. The price for your redemption is shocking, but this father who has decided to adopt you doesn't even flinch. At a cost to himself you cannot fathom, a price that you will not understand until your own faculties have matured. He ransoms your life. The redemption entails a journey of a distance. We have no categories for comprehending. A sacrifice that risks everything, suffers, dies, and rises from the dead. And in the triumphant resurrection, your life is secured. This is what God is offering to you and me. This is what it means to know and, and be known by God. This is why we say, we look forward to the new heaven, the new earth, and the new city because we're going we're to enjoy the presence of God. We're going to live in the presence of God, experiencing his mercy, enjoying his pleasures, and aware of his justice forever. He is the treasure, and he treasures us. I would hope that would encourage you as you look at the world around us and go, it just feels like everything's falling apart. Everything... Around here is falling apart maybe, but it's not all falling apart. There's a city, and you're part of that in Christ Jesus. A new heaven will replace the current heaven. A new earth will replace the current earth. And a new city of Jerusalem will replace the current city of Jerusalem. And you and I will get new bodies, and we will live in that realm for the rest of eternity, protected safe suffering and pain no longer evil and wickedness history forever and we will grow in in that relationship with God and each other as we live as God intended for us and Eden restored which is where we'll pick up next week in chapter 22 let this encourage you but it comes down to whether or not you believe you have that decision that choice do you believe He's trustworthy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word here that opens our eyes to future history. It seems too good to be true on the surface. But when we recognize the context in which we read this and we recognize the thousands of years of history that has been pointing to this and then has been seeing this fleshed out, we recognize that it's more than just a, a novel idea. It's why you call your word truth. And in a day where we feel like we can't trust anybody, you've given us something that, has, that is way older than us, that has stood the test of time. It's reliable, 
and trustworthy because they are your words that you've revealed to us. But you give us the freedom to reject these words. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us think about what we would be doing. What alternative is there that you could even dream up that would compete with this, that would be more reliable and trustworthy than this, that would be more amazing a future than this? And yet you give us the freedom to say no. Thank you, God, for that freedom. And thank you, God, for loving us enough to show us your mercy so that we can have eyes to see the kingdom that is and yet not is yet. Not quite here. I pray that we would have the the courage to take you at your word and to trust you with everything in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.